Well, quite a war of words has broken out today between Russia and many countries in the West. And indeed, the Deputy Prime Minister of Russia, Alexander Novak, said overnight a rejection of Russian oil would lead to catastrophic consequences for the global market, causing prices to double to $300 a barrel. And hints that if the Russians don't like the sanctions, if the Russians don't like us stopping buying their products, well, they could even close a gas pipeline. The response to all of this, well, in America, it's been pretty unequivocal and pretty clear. Joe Biden has said America is going to cease buying Russian oil, Russian coal and Russian gas, period. In the United Kingdom, the response has been slightly more nuanced. That's one way of putting it, quasi quarting. The minister responsible says we're going to phase out the imports of Russian oil by the end of 2022. That's 8% of the oil that we buy in the United Kingdom. But he said nothing about gas. No, we will go on buying Russian natural gas. Last year we spent about £2 billion on it. This year with the prices where they are, that will be considerably higher. It's about 4% of the gas that we use. You may think it isn't really very much. And my audience question tonight to you is, do you think we should go on buying Russian gas? Let me know what you think. Farage at gbnews.uk. I, of course, think it is completely and utterly mad given that we have literally under our feet huge reserves of shale gas. I had one or two guests last night from the renewables industry um, and, and, and they, they try and say, well, look, actually, the reserves we've got aren't that big. Yes, they are. There's enough there for at least 50 years, maybe enough there for 100 years. It's worth somewhere between one and two trillion pounds. And that's before further explorations of the North Sea. And anyone that thinks the North Sea is running out of oil and gas, remember, it's all about cost of production. And with oil price where it is, there's now a whole load more of the North Sea that becomes economic to drill. So please let me know what you think, and I'll discuss that and other extraordinary commodity price rises today. All of that in a moment. But first, let's go to Bradley Harris. He's there on the Polish-Ukrainian border covering the humanitarian aspect of over two million refugees that have now fled Ukraine. Bradley, where are you and what have you seen today? I'm in the area of Zerzhuf in Poland. And I'm here because when you think about what support is available in Poland for Ukrainians, you might not expect to find it in a railway station. And that's where I am now. I'm inside the main lobby. The people sat down are Ukrainians who have fled their country because of the Russian invasion. And I want to come down this corridor and just show you how this railway station has transformed over the last few days. Inside here, normally a place we can get information about your train services, now transformed into a place where Ukrainians can get free food, free water, sandwiches, drinks, nappies for children, because of course it's mainly women and children who are here and who are allowed to flee Ukraine. Uh, many children are here and not just food but toys, uh, readily available and free of charge. Um, of course, if you are Ukrainian, uh, they do advise to show your Ukrainian passport in order to get services such as trains out of you. 
for free. Um, volunteers are working round the clock to keep this place running, to keep things clean and to offer advice and support for people. Uh, also a place to stay is really crucial. We can't go in here at the moment. We're advised by volunteers not to go inside. This is a, a, a room full of beds where people can lay down their head and rest. For many Ukrainians they would have been travelling 20, 30, for some people up to 40 hours uh, in a car to cross the border into Poland. Some journeys normally take five to six hours on a normal day. Um, but of course life isn't normal at the moment and here in this train station you can get a sense of it. In the corner you've got toys on a table so children have something to do. Uh, over here there's a tuck shop that's been set up and people can come here and have free food. They've even gone to the effort of having uh, Ukrainian themed cookies for people to help themselves. So this is how Poland is showing their support for the people of Ukraine. And I think this is support that is going to be vital for Ukrainians as they begin to flee their country and start a new life elsewhere. So that was Bradley Harris on the border there. And it does seem to be remarkable uh, the way that Poland is dealing with this huge influx of people and it all seems to be so orderly uh, and being really so well done. Massively, massively impressive. Now you've heard a lot over the course of the last couple of weeks about sharp rises in the price of oil, huge rises in the price of gas. But one particular commodity I bet you haven't heard of or thought about is nickel. And I say this with some passion because for 20 years before getting involved in politics, I worked as a broker and dealer on the London Metal Exchange. I saw during those 20 years all sorts of financial crises, all sorts of extraordinary moves of the prices of key industrial metals. But nothing, I mean literally nothing, like that that has happened to nickel in the course of the last 48 hours. I would tempt to say the nickel move isn't inflationary, it looks to be hyperinflationary. Well, joining me to discuss all of this is our economics and business editor, Liam Halligan. Liam, tell us what on earth is going on in the nickel market. Well, had you been at the London Metals Exchange today, Nigel, I venture to say it would have been a day for one of those long Farage lunches. Uh, because trading was suspended, at least in the market for nickel. I think we can take a look at the graph of the nickel price. This is what's been happening recently. It's gone up from $20,000 a tonne to $100,000 a tonne. Why is that? Because Russia, of course, is one of the major exporters of nickel. And all six of the biggest freight shipping lines in the world, including one that's Chinese, have stopped exporting from Russia and Ukraine, either because they're sanctioning Russia or Ukraine or because of safety concerns, given that many of those ports are mired in conflict. Why should we care if the nickel price goes up? Well, as you know well, Nigel, you use nickel when you make stainless steel. You use nickel when you make turbines. You use nickel when you build plumbing components. Crucially, the fastest growing market for nickel is in the batteries of electric cars. So electric cars just got a lot more expensive. It's not just nickel, of course. It's titanium, palladium, aluminium, all kinds of industrial metals which were once your bread and butter, Nigel. You know many of them are derived from Russia. That shipping ban means they're not getting to global markets, hence big price spikes.
Yeah, and also, uh, perhaps closer to home, uh, other than those wanting to buy an electric car in the next couple of years, is, of course, energy bills. You know, we're, we're talking about bills going up to £2,000 per household, but actually, looking at today's spot prices for gas, seem to me, Liam, in a year's time, if nothing changes, it could be nearer £4,000 per household. You rightly said at the top of the hour, Nigel, that there was a ferocious war of words going on now between Russia and the West. This is a military conflict between Russia and Ukraine, but it's a full-on economic conflict between Russia and the West. The spot price of gas on West European markets today was 16 times higher than a year ago. Oil touched $138 a barrel yesterday, and it wasn't far off today. Why is that happening? It's not just because... Russia produces about 10% of the world's oil. It's not just because Russia produces about 40% of Western Europe's natural gas. And by the way, just because we use less Russian gas, we still buy gas on global markets, so we're not insulated. The real reason for these energy price spikes in the last 24, 48 hours is because the US Congress is debating a draft law to ban Russian oil on Western markets. The UK and the EU may follow, at least to some degree, as you say, Kwasi Kwarteng gave a rather measured statement today. But the Russians themselves now are talking about not allowing their oil and gas to go to the West. Nigel, even during the days of the Soviet Union, at the height of the Cold War, when we were lads, the Soviet Union kept pumping gas to the West. But even that now is in doubt this economic conflict just got a lot worse. It sure did. It sure did. Liam, thank you very much indeed for that somewhat grim assessment of where we are. But that is where we are. And, you know, remember, if that pipeline, if the pipelines that exist were closed, literally in Germany, the heating would go off in 50% of German houses. Uh, manufacturing would grind to a halt. So I will later on in the programme show you a clip of a recent American president who predicted much of this could happen. It just shows you energy. It isn't just about price. It's also about security. And that's why I think we should become self-sufficient in energy. Why does Kwasi Kwarteng want us to go on buying Russian gas? when there's plenty of it, at least I believe there's plenty of it, in our country. Well, joining me to talk about energy security and energy production is Dr. Benjamin Sobercool, Professor of Energy Policy at the University of Sussex Business School. Benjamin, good evening. Welcome uh, to the programme. Um, could we, let me ask you this. If we decided that we did want to produce our own onshore natural gas, just in case at some point in this war that pipeline does close, how long would it take us to get gas, onshore gas, in our country into production? Uh, that's an excellent question, Nigel. And we've been studying the historical rates of previous energy transitions, transitions on the supply side, like oil and gas and coal, and transitions on the demand side, like there was a famous town gas transition very much here in England in the 60s that saw us convert 40 million appliances and 4 million homes in less than a decade. Uh, and so there's clear historical precedent that some transitions can be fairly rapid, although they still take years. 
My sense is that any attempt to really diversify beyond Russian gas would take at least a year. Absent any sort of emergency measures where we stop driving and we stop flying and we start rationing fuel and petrol, which no one really wants to do. Uh, even just this, this today, the European Commission said that they've put together a plan to get rid of Russian gas in a year. <laughs> and that's still very, very quick. And it's only two thirds of Russian gas. The UK does have some onshore gas. We've experimented with fracking and shale gas, but even then, I don't think that you'd be able to ramp up that significantly, at least within the next six months. No, okay, well, that, that's fine. I mean, you know, we need to know what the facts are. And when it comes, Benjamin, to the size, the potential size of the reserves that we have, um, how do you estimate those reserves in terms of total monetary value and, and longevity if we decide to start to extract it? Well, that's, that's kind of very much the trick, Nigel, is it's a constantly moving target because the recoverable ability of any resource, gas or shale gas or oil, is constantly changing based on not only technical improvements, but also changing demographic factors like price. And so I think the amount of recoverable gas in the UK is up for debate. You have offshore and onshore qualities, but I think it's more important to even think about the trading of gas. The UK does have pipelines that do bypass Russia, and we can access gas from things like LNG, that's liquefied natural gas. So there are plenty of ways to diversify that don't necessarily demand that we actually increase onshore production. That would also run afoul of some of the Committee on Climate Change's targets. Um, I also want to just emphasize there is still immense potential the UK can do for things like energy efficiency. We just did a study a few years ago that found that you could actually save six Hinkley C nuclear power plants, six, if you cost effectively did things like building standards. And a lot of that is cutting in heat demand, which is actually affecting natural gas supply. So we don't always have to think of, let's do more gas. We can also do things like smarter energy efficiency policy that have even bigger dividends. Yeah, no, I mean, that all makes absolute sense to me. And there's nothing that I've been uh, saying with, with, with this campaign that I'm on over the last few days, which has been launched. You know, I'm all for it. If we can get renewables that work without taxpayer subsidy, if we can save energy through good insulation, all of those things, of course, make sense. Benjamin, one final question. I found, not amongst the public, uh, but amongst many in the ruling classes, uh, a fair degree of antipathy towards my idea that we should be self-sufficient in our energy needs. Is this all because they believe that by offshoring production and manufacturing and lowering British levels of CO2 that somehow they're saving the world? Potentially. I think it's more likely that they're driven by cost and affordability over things like security or reliability or self-sufficiency. We've done a 50-year assessment of energy policy trends and found that cost, cost, cost tends to be the single biggest factor. Everything else is second, the environment, jobs, growth. But you're right, if you were to flip the logic to prioritize national security, competitiveness, and resilience, it would be possible to make the UK almost entirely self-sufficient. We would still need to have some trading relationships for things like technology or refining. Um, but the UK does have an enormous amount of domestic energy reserves, renewable, um, as well as some hydrocarbons. 
Excellent. Well, on that very positive note, I will say thank you very much indeed to Benjamin Sobercool. You see, folks, it can be done. It should be done, but there is massive resistance to doing it. Uh, we're seeing governments in Europe changing their position. Biden today said America should be self-sufficient with energy, and this from a president who cancelled a domestic pipe, uh, pipeline within the first week of the inauguration of his presidency. All across the Western world, people are radically changing their energy policies. It's just in the United Kingdom. At the moment, they simply don't want to listen. In a moment, we'll find out what happened today to John Burko as the Standards Committee reports. And many think, finally, he's got his comeuppance. Should we stop buying Russian gas? I certainly think we should, but for some reason, Kwasi Kwarteng thinks we should continue. I don't get it. Some of your reactions. One viewer says, stop buying Russian, stop buying Chinese. Difficult to stop buying Chinese. So many things are made by them, but one day you never know. Joe says, get fracking. Well, there are other methods than fracking, but yes, I get the point. Tim says, absolutely. Some hardship and another jumper is a lesser price to pay for freedom than our forebears had to pay. Another says, yes, we should. And John says, cold shoulder Russia on everything and straight away. John, we can all cold shoulder Russia straight away, but we do have to be aware of what the Russian Deputy Prime Minister said overnight, which is, if we get upset with you, we're going to turn off the taps. And that would be a catastrophe for the Germany that Mrs. Merkel created. Now, health. I have been saying since I started doing this show in July of last year, I said it on the first show, that at some point, if we're going to deal with an NHS backlog in England and Wales of 6.1 million people, we're going to have to start thinking more constructively about how we use the private sector. Well, I'm pleased to say, in some ways, that the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, had this to say today. It starts with more choice at the front door including more active discussions between professionals and patients. But that right to choose can't just end at the front door. Today I'm announcing a better offer to long waiters. We will move to a model where long waiters will be offered a right to choose, proactively contacted to discuss an offer of alternative provisions. That could be the trust next door. It could be a trust that's further away, and if it is, your transport costs, accommodations, other incidental costs will be covered. It could be the independent sector. This is something the very best systems are already doing, but I want it to become standard. And I know it won't be easy, and that we must begin by making this offer to the very longest waiters. So by the end of December, people who are at risk of waiting 78 weeks or more will be contacted first. Well, the very longest waiters that were referred to there by Sajid Javid are the nearly third of a million people who've been waiting well over a year in many cases. And I guess that's what this policy is aimed at. On the face of it, I think it makes a whole load of sense. But let's go to somebody who knows far more about the way this works than me. I'm joined by a friend of the programme, Roy Lilly, former NHS Trust Chairman and Health Commentator. Roy, welcome back to the show. We've, we've talked about this, you and I, 
in the past. Um, is Sajid Javid now taking this problem at least to some extent in the right direction? Well, uh, good evening, Nigel. Yeah, well, yes, he is. Uh, but I mean, it, it's not quite as simple as he, as he says. First of all, already patients have the right to go to a private hospital under the NHS constitution. So he's not announced anything new. They, they can do that now. The, what he's saying, the new bit is they are going to proactively go to people and say, listen, you've been waiting a long time. Do you want to go somewhere else? Well, that's fair enough. Uh, I mean, there are issues about the fact that, that you know, people on waiting lists are generally older people. You know, some of the operations are quite complicated. Post-operative, there's an issue about getting them home and all that. So it's not quite that easy. Um, but And this the, the, the private sector thing. I mean, look, no one's got any problems with with the with the private sector. I mean, it, it's run it's it's staffed by NHS people anyway. But the, the 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 issue is this: at the moment, the private sector are having a Klondike because there are long waiting lists. People are doing what we call self-pay, or families are syndicating the costs for Granny's new hip, so they're paying and they're chock a block and they're chock a block at premium rates. If they work for the NHS, they are only allowed to be paid at tariff. Now, tariff is the kind of price that the NHS pays to itself. So it can't pay more, can't pay a premium to the private sector. So the private sector is saying, well, listen, thanks very much. I mean, we were happy to help you during COVID because no one could go to hospital. But as it is, we're chock-a-block with our own hips and we're getting 17,000 quid for a hip and you're only going to play us eight grand. So, you know, I, I don't really see this is going to be the big solution. No, well, what you say makes absolute perfect sense. I was just trying to be optimistic, but uh, you clearly <laughs> kicked that into touch fairly rapidly. Uh, Roy, what Sorry, on earth are we going to do? Uh, no, that's all right. I mean, I, I, I believe you. What are we going to do? This waiting list is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. What the hell are we going to do? It, uh, Nigel, it, it's horrendous. Uh, it's partly workforce. We, we don't have the workforce. We went into COVID with huge workforce problems that were the legacy of 10 years of flatline funding after the, the world banking crisis. We didn't train enough people. We went into COVID. COVID kind of disguised all the staffing problems because everybody did everything. Now we're coming mm -hmm. out of that. We just simply don't have the people. We don't have the capacity. I mean, the, the private sector is fine. I mean, uh, the, the, most of their capacity is is 60% of it is centered in London. So that doesn't really help anywhere else. And there are issues as well. A lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them don't have ITU. So in 2019, for example, uh, I think it was just under 600 people were operated on in the private sector and had to be transferred by ambulance to a hospital because they ran into problems. What are we going to do? It's a long haul, Nigel. I mean, uh, uh, if I if I could if I had a solution, I'd tell you. I mean, there was a time I was involved a few years ago with sending cardiac patients to Belgium and to Germany. We can't do that because. Belgium and Germany have got their own problems post-COVID. So it, this is going to be a long haul. I think two things we should do. One, I think some hospitals should be uh, accident emergency, trauma hospitals, and take care of all the trauma. You can do that on a semi-regional basis. And all the others, I'd turn them into effectively hip factories or knee factories and let them do three uh, operating sessions a day, running into the late of night, 
you know, for the staff who are willing to do it and just try and crack people through. Uh, and that's really all you can do. One of the problems with doing it in your local hospital is you can sometimes get your operating list completely screwed up by the, the fact there's a smack on the motorway and you've got to come in and do trauma patients. So yeah. if we could just kind yeah. of get the factory principle working, we could do that. So, I mean, that's really the only thing I can think of. And, you know, the NHS aren't stupid. They'll do that anyway. Okay. All right. No. Well, that's practical stuff. Roy, as ever, thank you for joining us here on my the programme. Thanks. Now, my what the Farage moment. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder whether, I wonder whether, folks, you'll agree with me um, that so often the things that the guy from New York said, the orange man from New York, the one that all the media hated, the one uh, that you were told, don't take him seriously. He's a seriously bad guy. He's really, really stupid. Well, let's have a look at President Donald Trump, as he was, a couple of years back, talking to the United Nations Assembly, and he was talking about energy security. Take a close look. Reliance on a single foreign supplier can leave a nation vulnerable to extortion and intimidation. That is why we congratulate European states such as Poland, for leading the construction of a Baltic pipeline so that nations are not dependent on Russia to meet their energy needs. Germany will become totally dependent on Russian energy if it does not immediately change course. Here in the Western Hemisphere, we are committed to maintaining our independence from the encroachment of expansionist foreign powers. Well, that was President Donald Trump. And did you see, look, have a look, the Germans laughing, the German delegation laughing at President Trump. Of course, Trump must be wrong. We're Germany. We're so educated. We're so cultured. We're just so clever. Do you know, we're so clever that our former Chancellor Gerhard Stroder now works for Gazprom. Isn't that fantastic? And Angela Merkel, well, she's a genius. I mean, clearly the best leader in the Western world. She's done these great deals with Russia. And now they face the prospects, perhaps, of the heating going out in half their houses and every factory in Germany closing down. You see, you may not like President Trump's style. I get it. He's not everyone's cup of tea. But on many of these big issues, he was right. I really mean it. Now, the other What the Farage moment of today is John Burko. Now, I'm not a great fan of John Burko, and this isn't just because I had a plane crash in his constituency standing against him. Um, I've always thought there's something incredibly false about Burko, this hard young right-winger, Monday clubber, who gradually moved towards becoming, as he is now, what well, he was until this morning, a member of the Labour Party. Um, and it seemed to me that move towards Labour was all about John Burko becoming Speaker of the House of Commons. Well, after a very considerable period of time, the Standards Committee have reported back today. They've said that he's a serial bully. They've said that he's a liar. They've said that his violent outbursts of, of temper were astonishing, including throwing mobile phones on desks so that they smashed, uh, shouting repeatedly at staff. And astonishingly, when he was actually interviewed, apparently 20 times in the formal interview, he imitated the voice and mannerisms of one 
of the complainants. He has had his House of Commons passed. He's not going to get a House of Commons passed. He won't be allowed there. The chances now of him getting a peerage are pretty much zero. He's been exposed, but why did it take this long? Well, I'll tell you why. Because he spent three and a half years as Speaker of the House of Commons doing everything he could to stop Brexit from happening and the establishment protected him. And I really do genuinely, passionately believe that. In his defence, Mr Burko has said, do not fall for the establishment spin that I have been banned for life. This is a travesty of justice and it brings shame on the House of Commons. Actually, old son, I think the boot's on the other foot, but hey. And my last What the Farage moment of today is the Taliban on International Women's Day. Yes, and Suhail Shaheen, a member of the Taliban, tweeted today the following. On the occasion of International Women's Day, I would like to say women have all their fundamental rights as per Islamic rules. They can avail that. The country is committed to providing a secure environment to deliver their legitimate needs and demands. And I have a feeling that my guest on Talking Pites might just have something to say about that. Before that, let's get a few more of your comments that are coming in. Should we go on buying Russian gas? And one viewer says, yes, and start fracking and increase North Sea oil production um, in the interim whilst investing in the long-term solution, which is nuclear. There's not been much nuclear debate. There needs to be, I think, perhaps more of it. After all, it is the one form of regular, reliable energy with no carbon dioxide emissions at all. Pam says, yes, start fracking. Putin and his cohorts are probably behind the anti-fracking demos here, so don't buy Russian gas or oil. Pam, this is really interesting. The increasing evidence that the huge campaign that took place in this country to tell us that we should not produce onshore gas, increasing evidence that much of this was Russian funded. Hey, it makes sense, doesn't it, if you're Russia? Another says, see how Putin reacts to this. The clown is totally shut out. Well, uh, I tell you what, whoever said that, if he wanted, if he did close down those pipelines, he could bite back pretty hard. Joining me on Talking Pints today, a woman of astonishing achievements in the financial services world, a campaigner for women's rights, totally appropriate. But on International Women's Day, I'm joined by Dame Helena Morrissey. Well, it's time, isn't it? The GB News Tavern is open. Sadly, I'm still in Barcelona, but I will be back in that studio tomorrow. So it's a long distance talking pints with Baroness Helena Morrissey. Um, Helena, welcome to the programme. I'm sorry that it's remote. Um, tell oh, me something. As a campaign, as a campaigner, how do you respond uh, to that comment of the Taliban's about International Women's Day? Well, as the suffragette said, it's deeds, not words. Um, and unfortunately as well, of course, the Taliban seems to make up its own interpretation of Islamic law. So uh, ever since they've come back into power, I'm afraid all the news has been pretty dire for women. Um, we hear stories of girls not being able to go to school and finish their education, terrible treatment of women. So I'm afraid it doesn't really cut much ice with me, Nigel. No, I didn't think it would. Um, and before we talk about your business career, and your various campaigns that are, that are very much ongoing and, and, and campaigns that you believe in passionately. 
Um, the single most important thing about you, of course, is that you have nine children. And I'm just wondering, because, you know, I'm here in, I'm here in Spain uh, for a few days because of a child issue. And the more children you have, the more issues there are, little problems, difficulties, successes. How on earth do you manage with nine children, um, a busy business life with, with AJ Bell now, uh, various charities, other commitments? How on earth do you manage it all? Well, some days not terribly well, Nigel. I mean, you're right. The more children you have, the more issues they, there are. Um, my husband is brilliant. He's always been the huge... Um, supporter. Um, he's the reason I've been able to have the career, really, because he's been a stay-at-home dad since we had our fourth child. But yeah, you're right. Some days there just aren't enough parents to go around, I'm afraid. No. Well, I mean, I have to say, it's, it, it, it's a very, very impressive uh, juggling act, and, and, and you clearly do it very, very well. I'm guessing that the only way you can do all of these things is perhaps just not to sleep very much. Or else not be too worried about being imperfect and not quite get everything right all the time, Nigel. I've learned to let go. Sometimes if something is not quite right, just, you know, it's good enough. Um, so, yeah, not much sleep and not being a perfectionist. Those are the two real secrets, I'm afraid. Yeah. Yeah, well, you manage it somehow. Now, I, I went into the London Metal Exchange in 1982 and spent 20 years there uh, before politics kind of took over, it wasn't really planned, but politics kind of took over my life. And I remember the city of the 80s um, and into the 1990s, and partly it was because an open outcry exchange was naturally, you know, a, a fairly aggressive kind of place. But let's face it, whether we looked at, in those days, whether we looked at the Stock Exchange, Lloyds of London, uh, pension fund management, um, any of those industries. I mean, women were pretty few and far between. And I think a lot of women that did work in those, or in, in, in those businesses, you know, tried it for a couple of years, didn't like it, got out, decided it wasn't for them. How did you manage when you first started out in that city of London? Well, you're right, Nigel. I mean, it was blokey. Um, I was the only woman in a team of 16. I was a bond fund manager. I remember visiting the London Metal Exchange, actually, and watching the open outcry. That was probably more macho than my day-to-day -day existence. But, you know, people thought nothing of taking clients to lap dancing clubs and that sort of thing. So it was a kind of weird environment. I'm not a quitter. Um, I am a bit sort of, you know, belligerent about persevering with things. And when I was passed over for promotion after having my first child, and I hadn't changed my working habits, you know, I was still working hard. Um, and I was told it wasn't to do with my performance, but some doubt over my commitment with the baby. I'm afraid that sort of unleashed a determination in me to both forge my career in the city, but also um, to actually try to eventually, when I had a bit more power, do something for other women. Yeah, I mean, so having children, you know, I mean, obviously maternity leave, and it depends how much time you take off. But, but I mean, I am presuming that if you take lots of time off because you've had children, that makes it much harder, presumably, when you come back. It does. I mean, I didn't ever, I mean, and I'm not proud of this, I didn't take that much time off. I mean, with my last child, um, because then I was the CEO of an investment company, and you could only take uh, less than 12 weeks. Otherwise, you had to sort of give your job to somebody else. So I took 11 weeks. So that's not a long time in the scheme of a big career or a long career. 
Um, so I think obviously if you take a year off each child, I mean, if I had nine years off with nine children, that would have been somewhat detrimental to my career. But we're talking about relatively short times. And of course, mm. nowadays, you can still stay in touch. Um, and obviously, a lot of people are working in a hybrid way and perhaps come back and forward. Um, we can debate merits of that. But, you know, things have changed quite a bit about working habits. Yeah. Yeah, I think actually it's probably easier now, isn't it? You know, the idea of working from home and, you know, Zoom calls and connectivity and all the rest of it. I, I can see now, actually, it must be easier than it used to be when you had to be, you know, at your desk for 8 o'clock or, or, or whatever it was. How do you, how do you assess, um, Helena, because financial services, it doesn't get, you know, frankly, much of a good reputation. People sort of think evil bankers and all the rest of it, and yet... You know, you and I both know it's Britain's biggest industry. It's something we're really good at. How is it dealing with Brexit? Well, I mean, first of all, obviously, the whole image of the city is more than just how we're dealing with Brexit. But I think we've been slow as a city. And, you know, I was on the side of Brexit. I was a, a rather lone voice out publicly um, in support of Brexit prior to the referendum. And I think for a first few years after the vote in 2016, uh, the city behaved as if it was on a sort of damage limitation exercise, you know, that we were losing some access to EU clients, um, that we would tread very carefully so we didn't lose much of the existing business. And I think as time's gone on, as the reality has emerged, that there actually are opportunities to seize. And now we're seeing more bold um, lobbying going on. I mean, just now it's a Subject your listeners or watchers, viewers might not want me to get into in too much detail, but you know the idea about reforming Solvency II, which is basically the regulatory framework for insurance companies, mm. this is a big deal. I mean, this is something which will mean that instead of money, capital, sitting idly on insurance balance sheets, it can be put to productive use. And finally, the city, I think, is waking up. This is, you know, it's a terrible environment we're in in lots of ways. We obviously know we've got terrible oil um, and other energy price increases that are going to be very detrimental to the economy, inflation at 30-year high, etc. Lots of difficulties. But we need to seize this moment. The regulations, the legal framework needs to be right for the UK, not now having to be right for 27 or 28 countries. No, well, I have to say, I felt that passionately for years and years and years. And indeed, actually, it was my time working on the metal exchange that really made me a Brexiteer because I could see the global dimension of what London was doing and, 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 and I felt doing it quite well. But tell me something, honestly, you know, John Glenn is the city minister. He's the guy talking about these, these regulatory reforms and I welcome all of that. But honestly, to number 10 Downing Street, to Whitehall, do they actually understand money and financial markets? Oh, that's a very, it's going to lead me to a very harsh answer, isn't it? Because I'm afraid the closer I get to that, and now <laughs> I'm in the House of Lords, the, the less convinced I am that they do. But I do yeah. think they know sometimes who to ask. And I think they're getting more realistic, perhaps because it's a needs must. You know, they don't have all the answers. You know, a lot of my campaigning around having more women in the city is partly because we want diversity of thought. We want new opinions, different perspectives. And I think they're realizing, actually, you know, we absolutely have to have the expertise from the city. So I think they're not trying to go it alone so much. Uh, that I welcome. Mm, well, I have to say, that was a very diplomatic and very polite answer. <laughs> I've got to tell you, having spent 20 years in the European Parliament, um, I don't think most people in politics have got a clue about money or financial markets or any of those things. And, and you mentioned... Uh, 
a moment ago, you mentioned the House of Lords. I, I mean, obviously, I'm imagining you're not spending a huge amount of time there. Um, but I mean, can there be a more disconnected group of people anywhere in this country, disconnected from the real world, disconnected from reality, than the House of Lords? I've only got a few friends there. I don't want to make all enemies, but um, I do feel it's a bit out of touch. I mean, I'm, I'm being, you know, I was diplomatic before, but now I go in and, you know, I, I'm afraid I haven't really found my, my metier there. Um, and sometimes one sits through things that, you know, you, I mean, once we had a discussion on another of your favorite topics on green energy, and there was a long debate about lead uh, pigeon, shot in pigeons, which, you know, really, I, I thought anyone tuning in is going to think we've completely lost the plot. So I'm afraid I have to agree with you. I, I do feel it's, it's, there must be a better way to get, you know, a review. I think the thing it does well is, you know, it is trying to review government legislation that might be done in a real hurry, might be curtailing our freedoms sort of on the mm. sly. Mm. That's a really important thing to do. But there has to be a better way of doing it than sort of having this rather archaic, you know, I'm just not the kind of person that likes to jump up and shout, my lords, my lords, and have everybody sort of, you know, wait on what I'm saying. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit of a challenge for me to find a way in. Uh, I'll keep persevering. As I said, I'm not a quitter, Nigel. No, no, I'm sure you will. I've no, absolutely no doubt about that. Now, in the wake of, of the horrible events, terrible events that are going on in Ukraine, uh, energy is becoming you know, one of the most debated topics in the world. And as you will know, um, I'm doing my best to try and have a debate about this. I'm calling for a referendum on net zero because I want these things to be discussed. I just want to ask you, you know, can we afford the government's current net zero plans? So the big problem, of course, is it's not being properly costed. And so often, and this probably goes back to this idea that you floated earlier that the government might not really understand how the economy works. You cannot really announce, or you shouldn't really announce, these big schemes without having a clue about how much they'll cost. I watched your interview yesterday uh, with Dale Vince of Ecotricity, and I know you mentioned that the previous chancellor, Philip Hammond, has estimated it's going to be a trillion pounds. Obviously, other analyses that are done in the private sector suggest there'll be some offsetting benefits. We have to do the cost-benefit analysis. But all those costs, or most of them, would be upfront. And of course, we can't afford that at the moment. We, we, you know, however much people want to have and aspire to a lower carbon world and net zero, perhaps, we just can't afford it um, when we're basically on the verge of stagflation, I'm afraid. No, I'm afraid I think that's absolutely right. And I, I suspect that that is going to be uh, something uh, that really starts to happen, a big change. I noticed today that the tradable price of carbon has fallen very, very sharply uh, within the European market. Um, and that's a reflection that Italy Germany, countries that have made themselves so dependent on Russia are going to have to start digging coal or doing whatever they are going to have to do in the very, very short term. Now, nearly everybody has money going into pensions, whether it's through a workplace scheme or whether it's through their own private provision. Um, and, and, and generally, we give this money to the industry to look after us. There are a few people who now are seeking financial independence what should I mean somebody watching this program who's 35 self-employed wants to put some money aside what in your view should they do how much control should they have over their own money 
Well, having control over your money is tantamount to having more control over your destiny. So you need to do something. I mean, a lot of people, I think, are afraid because they don't understand the jargon that our industry uses too much of. They just don't know where to get started. I've, I've, been, I've signed up, Nigel, to your fortune and freedom e emails, and I'm, gonna, I'm watching your videos and so forth. So I know what you're trying to um, achieve here. And I think it's a good aim. I mean, AJ Bell, which is trying to, you know, its motto, its mission is to help more people invest is very simple to understand, it's low cost, it's really trying to give people the very basic understanding to make their, those decisions that will, you know, the, the things you decide now will obviously affect your financial future in a big way. And I'm afraid too many people, head in the sand, good news about auto-enrollment, having company pensions that you don't even sort of pay into, but the company does it for you, and perhaps you match it, is that more people have, perhaps not to their knowledge particularly, but they've got a pension going on in the background. Um, but yeah, take control of your financial destiny and it'll help you lead a better life. On that very positive note, on International Women's Day, I want to thank you very much indeed for coming in, doing Talking Pints. I apologise that for family reasons it's remote, but thank you very much thank indeed. Thank you, Nigel. Thanks for Baroness having me Baroness Morrissey for being our guest today. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you. you. Well, there's somebody who really is a woman of extraordinary achievement. How quite she manages all that with nine children is completely and utterly beyond me. Now, we have a little bit of time left for Barrage the Farage. Someone's just printed this out for me. I haven't had a sneak preview, I promise. Here goes. Mick asks me, do you think we should be developing tidal turbines to generate renewable energy? Mick, I've never understood this because we can predict the high tide time and the strength of that tide and the size of that tide a hundred years today in Dover. We know exactly what the tides within reason are going to do. Therefore, unlike wind or solar, surely it could be you know, a much more reliable source of renewable energy. Why the technology doesn't work, I just don't know, and it's a question I've asked so many times over the years and never found a proper answer. Mary asks me, do you think that Ukraine could actually drive the Russians out? Mary, I don't know. They're clearly outgunned. Uh, it looks like what Putin has sent in thus far are the old tanks, uh, the less experienced troops. Uh, a lot will depend on how heavily armed the Ukrainians are. I mean, the odds say, no, they can't hold out, but you never know. Uh, look at Stalingrad, uh, where a very, very determined, disciplined group of people held off vastly, vastly bigger German numbers. I don't know. All I do know is that if I was an ordinary Russian soldier being told to go into Ukraine and fight and potentially kill people that were my cousins, I might struggle with morale. Whereas, if I was being told, defend our country with all its faults, but defend our country, defend our liberty, I might just fight that little bit harder. It's a thought. Seb asks, cod or haddock? Oh, I think actually haddock and chips is really, really good. Um, I'm asked by Bennett, has feminism gone too far now, potentially undermining its own success? Do you know, I think feminism actually is now facing other issues and other problems. And I think if you look, and I, this is not a subject I talk about much on this program at all, but if you look at the man that's become a woman in American swimming, that is now winning absolutely everything. I think a lot of people who are feminists are asking themselves, well, 
just, just where do we go from here? So I think perhaps on International Women's Day, it is actually worth mentioning this. Fraser asks me, Blackadder, Dad's Army or Faulty Towers? There's no question, all of them are completely and utterly brilliant and I wouldn't want to choose any one over the other. I'm going to be back tomorrow in the London studios with you. Uh, thanks for bearing with me and minor delays. Mark Stein's up in a moment, but right now, let's have a look at the weather.